Matthew chapter 27, we begin in verse 45. This is the word of God. Let us hear it. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there, when they heard that, said, This man calleth for Elias. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. The rest said, Let be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. Amen. We'll end our reading there. And we know that the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. I want to call your attention in particular to verse 46, the saying of Christ, a saying that, in a sense, defies comprehension. Notice what it says, In about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I'm reminded that when Moses in Old Testament days approached the burning bush and discovered in that bush a revelation of God's glory, he was instructed at that time to remove the sandals from his feet because he was standing on holy ground. There are verses in the Bible, I believe, that call for that same kind of reverence. The text before us is a case in point. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? These are words that go quite beyond our comprehension and should move us to bow in deep and solemn reverence and humility. They reveal to us the crowning penal affliction of Christ's sufferings, and the nature of this crowning affliction is such that a veil of darkness must be drawn across the scene, and we can only hear these words from the other side of that veil, so to speak. The dread of the cross for Christ, you see, did not lie so much in the physical pain he suffered or in the emotional pain that he knew of being rejected and condemned by sinners. And he knew both. He knew physical pain. He knew emotional pain to a great degree. He felt it when they rejected him. And he felt the pain from having 
nails driven into his hands and feet. Those afflictions, great as they were, though, brought no cry or complaint from his lips. His silence in the midst of those afflictions was such that it caused the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, to marvel. But now in the ninth hour, there does come a cry from our Savior. And I'm inclined to think that this cry carried the same volume as his final cry. We read of that cry in verse 46, that it was with a loud voice. And we read a few verses later, verse 50, that Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. Keep that in mind. He cried out with a loud voice. Mark's gospel provides an interesting point regarding the loudness of that final cry. We're told in Mark chapter 15, verse 39, that when the centurion who stood over against him saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. It wasn't so much what Christ cried out, but the loudness with which he cried out that convinced that centurion that Christ was the Son of God. The victims of crucifixion, you see, did not cry out with loud voices at the points of their death. They died overborne by their sufferings. They died being deprived of the strength to even take in another breath. The loudness of our Savior's cry bears clear testimony to the fact that his death was a supernatural death, and that no man took his life from him, but he laid it down freely. The loudness of his cry in verse 46, however, also indicates to us not only that this man was the Son of God, but that he had reached the crowning point of his penal afflictions. Here was the dread of the cross for our Savior. Not that he had nails driven into his hands and feet, not that he hung suspended in agony and shame between heaven and earth, but in the fact that his father had forsaken him. That his father would not in that instant support him. It's as if the powers of earth and hell were already against him, and now the power of heaven joins that conspiracy and turns against him too. These are tremendous words for us to contemplate then in preparing to remember Christ. For here is the epitome of justice and condemnation and wrath, as well as mercy and grace and love. Let us then remove the sandals from our feet, spiritually speaking, this morning, as we endeavor to contemplate something of the meaning of these words, My God, my God. Why hast thou forsaken me? Consider with me, first of all, that this statement, what this statement tells us about Christ's claim to his Father. Christ's claim to his Father. Underscore the words, my God, my God. And in these words, we discover a claim that 
no one else but Christ could make. Christ was and is, you see, in an ultimate sense, the Son of God. God is his Father. The Father was his God. And the doubling of the statement emphasizes the certainty of the claim as well as the preciousness of such a claim by Christ. You can't help but feel the emotion behind this claim. Only the hardest of hearts could fail to perceive the depth from which this cry comes forth from Christ. You see, before the world or the sun or the moon or the stars were ever brought into existence, there had been the strongest of love bonds between the Father and the Son. Creation did not fill a void in God's heart. It was not out of some sense of lack that God made man in his own image. And it was not in order to pursue some form of fulfillment that he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. It was rather to the praise of the glory of his grace. Three times in Ephesians 1, you find that stated, that salvation was and is to the praise of the glory of his grace. You should keep that in mind. You should let that uh, form for you your worldview, so to speak. That all that is done in this world is to the praise of the glory of God's grace, including salvation. Very tempting at times to become very selfish and self-centered when we think of salvation. After all, we are the beneficiaries of it. And we benefit greatly from it. But don't ever lose sight of the fact that there is an aim that actually goes beyond the benefits that you gain in salvation. And that aim is the glory of God himself to the praise of the glory of his grace. God had always, you see, been happy. He had always known the fullness of joy and satisfaction within the bonds of the persons of the triune God. Before creation, you could say, that God could say of his son, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And there was nothing done by Christ throughout the course of his earthly ministry to change that. Upon his baptism, when he formally entered into his mediatorial ministry, the father would testify that he was pleased with his son. Close to three years later, following many trials and temptations in the Mount of Transfiguration, God would bear the same testimony again. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And you've heard me say it, and I won't make an exception to it today, that whenever you hear that statement read, that testimony from God the Father with regard to His Son, it should move you to shout hallelujah. Because if God is pleased with His Son, that means He can be pleased with you and pleased with me as we are joined to His Son. This claim to God, therefore, is a clear declaration of Christ's personal obedience. He was obedient unto death. His obedient life did more than just qualify him for his death. 
Now, it is true that had our Savior stumbled so as to sin, he would not have been qualified to represent us. But his obedience to his Father did more than just qualify him to be our Redeemer. It supplied for us the righteousness of obedience that we've failed to supply for ourselves. And this is why I think it is worth remembering that it is the life and death of Christ together that accomplished salvation for those that believe in him. Robert Murray McShane makes the observation that the Lord Jesus came to be a doing as well as a dying Savior, not only to suffer all that he would have suffered, but to obey all that we should have obeyed, not only to suffer the curse of the law, (coughs) but to obey the commands of the law. He then elaborates on Christ's obedience. Listen to what he says. When the thing was proposed to him, that is to Christ in heaven, he said, Christ said, Lo, I come to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. Now then look at him as a man obeying his God. See how perfectly he did it, even to the last. God says, Be about my business. He obeys. Wished ye not that I must be about my father's business? He said, even as a boy, Luke's gospel. God says, speak to sinners for me. He obeys. I have meat to eat that ye know not of. My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. From John chapter 4. God says, die in the room of sinners. Wade through a sea of my wrath for the sake of enemies. Hang on a cross and bleed and die for them. He obeys. No man taketh my life from me. The night before he said, The cup which my father hath given me shall I not drink it. But perhaps he will shrink back when he comes to the cross. No. For three hours the darkness has been over him. Yet still he says, My God, my God. The great command laid upon him was to die for sinners. Behold how fully he obeys. His claim to God as his Father then is a just claim. God was truly his God. And there's a sad irony in our Savior's words when you consider that God is supposed to be our God. We were created so that we would call on God as our God. We're commanded in the first commandment to have no other gods save the true and living God. How tragic that rather than claim God as our own, we have instead claimed our own way. So we read in Isaiah 53 in verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray, We have turned every one to his own way. While we turn to our own ways then, Christ submits to his Father. 
while we buy the devil's lie that we shall be as gods, Christ, who could count it not robbery to be equal with God, makes himself of no reputation, takes upon him the form of a servant, and is made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbles himself and becomes obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Philippians 2. Most gladly, then, do we remember Christ's claim upon his Father as his God. Because Christ could say, my God, my God, we are able to say today, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Because Christ obeyed unto death, we have gained eternal life. Because Christ's obedience encompassed his life and his death, we are able to say our sins are blotted out and we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We must go deeper, however, into this claim of Christ. We must allow our hearts to be humbled by the tragic irony that while Christ could lay claim to God as being his God, we also find in our text, secondly, the Father forsaking his Son. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The word forsake conveys the idea of being abandoned or deserted. To leave in straits, to leave helpless, one Greek lexicon reads. Here then is where sin and grace are both magnified. The fact that our sins were imputed to him accounts for his father forsaking him. The fact that it was in our place condemned he stood magnifies the grace of the father and the son. If I could borrow again from McShane, who has a great sermon on this text that I recommend to you. Christ suffered much from his enemies. He suffered in all parts of his body, his cheeks, his face, his shoulders, which bore his cross, his back, his hands and feet, as well as his side, which suffered the thrust of the Roman soldier's spear. He suffered in all his offices as a prophet. They smote him on the face and said, Prophesy, who smote thee? As a priest, they mocked him when offering up that one offering for sins. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross, they said. As a king, they mocked him. When they bowed the knee and jesting, said, Hail, King of the Jews. He suffered much from those he afterwards saved. How bitter it would be the scoffing of the thief who that day was to be forgiven and accepted. How bitter the cries of the three thousand who were as soon brought to know him whom they crucified. He suffered from his own disciples. They all forsook him and fled. John the beloved stood afar off and Peter denied him. But worst of all, and this is where the dread of the cross is to be found, he suffered from his father. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
Other sufferings were finite. This alone, arguably, was infinite suffering. It was little to be bruised by the heel of men or devils, but ah, to be trodden by the heel of God, it pleased the Father to bruise him. Three things show the infinitude, if you will, the infinity of his sufferings. Who it was that forsook him. Not his people Israel, not Judas the betrayer, not Peter his denier, not John that lay in his bosom. He could have borne all this, but ah, it was his father and his God. Other things little affected him compared with that. The passers-by wagged their heads. He spoke not. The chief priests mocked him. He murmured not. The thieves casted in his teeth. He was as a deaf man who heareth not. God brought a three hours darkness over him, the outward darkness being an image of the darkness over his soul. And ah, this was infinite agony. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Consider also who it was that was forsaken. Why hast thou forsaken me? Here was one infinitely dear to God. Here was the one that God loved before the foundation of the world, one who basked in the beams of God's love. Yet thou hast forsaken me. Think about it. In forsaking his son, God was forsaking not only one who shared in his love, but he was also forsaking one who shared in his hatred for sin. We could understand God forsaking sinners who love their sin, but in forsaking his son, he forsakes one who, like him, hates sin, and one who had never sinned. How dreadful to an innocent man to be thrust into the cell of a condemned criminal. But ah, how much more dreadful to Christ, who had an infinite hatred of sin, to be regarded by God as a sinner. And then third, what God did to him. He forsook him. In that forsaking, Christ with, was without any comforts of God, no feeling that God loved him, no feeling that God pitied him, no feeling that God supported him. God was his sunlight before, but now that sun became all darkness, not a smile from his father, not a kind look, not a kind word. He was without a God. He was as if he had not God. All that God had been to him before was taken from him. Now he was godless, so to speak, deprived of his father. He was left instead with the feeling of the condemned when the judge says, Depart from me, ye cursed, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. He felt that God had said that in a sense to him. Ah, this is the hell that Christ suffered. Sometimes, you know, the greatest of God's saints become faint. And in the time of trial, they can harbor the notion that God has forsaken them. Job had such a feeling. 
Oh, that I knew where I might find him, Job cries out in Job 23 and verse 3. And yet Job's sense of being forsaken was really just an illusion. God had not forsaken him. God was near enough to him to hear and record every word that he spoke, every complaint that Job uttered. Christ's cry, however, was no illusion. It was not merely a sense of being forsaken. In Christ's case, it was the actual turning of his father from him. These things, then, are what make the sufferings of Christ being forsaken unfathomable. Words really do fail even the greatest of preachers throughout the ages when it comes to trying to penetrate such a deep and dark abyss. We're called upon, however, in the simplicity of these elements, the bread and the cup, to remember our Savior's cry. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And so we see then in the text the claim that Christ possessed on his Father. He was my God, my God. Interestingly enough, you turn to Hebrews chapter 1, and I won't have you turn there now, but you'll notice the next time you read through that chapter that God the Father owned the Son as his God also. Both of them, very God of very God. We see that in spite of such a claim, Christ must suffer being forsaken by his Father. It remains for us to endeavor uh, in some manner to think thirdly, finally, on the reason why. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That will undoubtedly be a question that we'll spend all eternity endeavoring to probe. Why would God forsake his son for the sake of rebellious sinners? Why would the just die for the unjust? Why would God forsake the one who loved him with a perfect love in order to spare those who hated him and spent their lives pursuing sin? We can do little more than skim the surface of such a question this morning as we prepare ourselves to remember Christ. We can answer the question, first of all, by noting that this forsaking of Christ by his Father was something that was planned from eternity. It was in the covenant of redemption that Christ agreed with his Father that he would suffer in the place of sinners. Every curse, Christ said, in effect, every curse that should fall on them, let it fall on me. We're able to say then that this forsaking of Christ by his Father was no accident, much less an alternate plan to Christ being rejected by the Jews, as some of the early dispensationalists have suggested. This cry comes forth from Christ's lips for our sakes. Not for the sake of Christ wanting to know something he didn't already know. He knew that he had covenanted with his Father for that very thing. It's certainly worth remembering that Christ was always aware of that hour to come. 
The moment he left heaven's glory to come into this world, he did so knowing that he was born to die and that his death must encompass being forsaken by his father. Indeed, when you recognize that the essence of death is being separated from God, then you realize that for Christ's death to be a real death, there must be this time of being forsaken by his father. And not only was Christ aware of this, but he was resolutely determined to go through with it nevertheless. There's a verse in Luke's gospel, it's found in chapter 9 and verse 51, that I've often found striking in what it says about Christ's resolute determination to see the matter through. We read in that verse, And it came to pass, when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. There was no balking or hesitation on Christ's part. He knew what awaited him. He explained it to his disciples, although it was so far beyond them that they couldn't comprehend it. And any attempt on the disciples' part to hinder Christ from this dreadful work was treated by Christ as the work of the devil. Get thee behind me, Satan, Christ would say to Peter when Peter tried to suggest that he could never let his Savior go to the cross. Get thee behind me, Satan, thou art an offense to me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Why hast thou forsaken me, Christ would ask? And the answer would be in part, because thou didst covenant to stand in the place of sinners that would put their faith in thee. McShane adds another answer to this question, why? He notes that God and Christ knew that either Christ must suffer or the whole world must suffer forever. It was his pity for the world that made him undertake to be a savior. So we read in Isaiah 59 and verse 16, he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore his arm brought salvation unto him, and his righteousness, it sustained him. So why, why must Christ be forsaken? Because it was either Christ or us. Hell for him or hell for us. And in his death we find one who could endure and subdue and conquer hell. Something, of course, that we could never do. And so we find ourselves humbled at the answers to the question, why hast thou forsaken me? We humbly and reverently bow with grateful hearts before our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because we understand in some measure the answer to the question, why? McShane concludes his sermon with this exhortation. Admire the love of Jesus. Oh, what a sea of wrath did he lie under for you. The broken bread and poured out wine are a picture of his love. 
Oh, when you look on them, may your heart break for longing toward such a Savior. We would say to all who close with Jesus Christ, he was forsaken in the room of sinners. If you close with him as your surety, you will never be forsaken. From the broken bread and poured out wine seemed to rise the cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? To which we answer, For me. It was for me and for you that Christ was forsaken, as well as to the praise of the glory of his grace. Oh, may our time around the Lord's table then this morning seal this very truth to our hearts this day that it was for very good reason according to a divine plan that Christ was forsaken by his Father. Let's close then in prayer then before we distribute the elements. And let's all pray. O Lord, as we bow down in thy presence, we do so with solemn reverence that Christ was willing to bear this crowning penal affliction in order that we might be redeemed, being forsaken of his Father. Lord, we confess that we're in over our head when it comes to comprehending such a glorious truth, such a gracious truth, but we thank thee that we do have the account of it clearly revealed in thy word. Oh, what matchless love and grace, therefore, is manifested and ministered to us. We pray, O oh Lord, that thou wilt bless us now in the remembrance of a love that would take Christ all the way to Calvary's cross and all the way to the point of being forsaken by his Father. Bless these truths to our hearts as we contemplate now the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.